Our scripture reading for today is found in Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 18. Joshua 24, 1 through 18. Let us hear the word of the Lord. And Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our forefathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We, too, will serve the Lord, because he is our God. This past week, I enjoyed taking a tour of the Federal Aviation Administration facility in Aurora, Illinois. It handles all the air traffic for parts of at least five states. Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Michigan. 
And the amazing thing is that, of course, it cannot see probably even 1% of the area whose traffic it controls. The air traffic control center there is fascinating. My college roommate, John, is in training to become an air traffic controller, and he demonstrated many of the details and workings of the facility, showing us how the controlling is done and telling us some details of interest, such as the fact that most of their equipment, aside from the mainframe computer, comes from the mid-70s. Much of it was made by Raytheon. But new equipment is uh, not, unfortunately, under contract from Raytheon, but from IBM. He also told us that their new mainframe computer costs $35 million, and it is relatively new within the past several years. He also said that if you took all the telephone wiring from that one facility, <coughs> you'd have enough wiring, telephone wiring, for a city larger than Bristol, for a city of around 50,000 people. He also said their facility handles more air traffic than any other facility in the world, having controlled 2.6 million aircraft last year. And I saw on their little billboard which indicated the amounts for the years and the busiest days that, to my great surprise, October 6th for the last two years was the busiest day of the year. I don't know why. <clears throat> and that uh, they handled over 9,000 aircraft this past October 6th. Interesting. As, as you can imagine, we learned and we saw many fascinating things. Unfortunately for Sandy, she missed this field trip. But I had become greater, greatly educated by it. <clears throat> but most of the things we were barely able to comprehend, as you can imagine, I mean... Just think of it, a facility that handles parts of five or six or more states. And you just look at the map and you, and you see all the, the, the airports are outlined in magenta. If you know what color magenta is, I just look at it. And, well, that looks like a color there. So, But uh, anyhow, all of the airports on that map is just phenomenal. <clears throat> and all of this... And all of those people are put together for one reason. They are put together to plot the courses for millions of aircraft each year, coming and going every which way across that whole map. Now, one of the interesting things, of course, was to see John demonstrating one of the centers, one of about, I would estimate afterwards, 48 stations, and the altitude for this center was from 16 to 32,000 feet. Now, in that altitude, just that 16 to 32,000 feet, there were some 20 blips or so moving across the screen, and you could tell which way they went because they had a shadow behind them, a tail behind them. And then John pressed a button, and strips were added to the screen, telling the flight call sign the altitude cleared at and going to the origination and destination of each aircraft, those 20 aircrafts. And then he pressed another button, and another altitude was added, a lower altitude. And by that time, about three times the number of blips were on the screen because he'd added a lower altitude. He pressed the button again, and by the time he had pressed from the ground up, that about 24-inch screen 
You just couldn't make head nor tails of that thing. It was so full of blips, it was like, and someone controls all of this, and this is just one sector. <laughs> all of those planes, and it was not even a busy time of day. It was amazing. Well, enough of those details, but John added some personal information, which was also very interesting, including the fact that being an air traffic control trainee is not much fun. <laughs> When he was asked about the kind of goofs he made, he was very honest. And he described two that were most common. The first, you could make a simple mistake and give clearances to aircraft that would conflict with the clearances of other aircraft. And the second was that you could see two aircraft and know where they needed to go, and your mind would go blank. You would get caught off guard without any plan in mind, as to how you were going to control them, as to where this one should go and where that one should go. And of course, the more blips there are on the screen, the much easier it is for your mind to go blank, wondering how you're going to work all those myriad of possibilities in together. Either way, as a trainee, you got your head bitten off. <laughs> I thought about those two mistakes that John detailed, and I realized how similar those mistakes are to the mistakes we can make as a matter of course in living out our lives. <clears throat> We've read Joshua's farewell address to the Israelites. This is at the end of the book of Joshua. The 24th chapter is the last one. And at the end of the 24th chapter, we read that Joshua died. But though we understand that Joshua is not talking about a technological task, such as organizing the flights of numerous aircraft, He's giving instructions that could have come straight from the air traffic controller's manual, which are these. You cannot rely upon the plans of others to make your own way. You must have your own plans and you must use your own mind. A mixed up plan won't work. Any old which way won't do. You must go one way or you must go the other way. You must decide and follow the course that you have chosen without vacillating. Oh, I made a mistake. Go this way, go that way. No, that won't work. And finally, Joshua clearly pointed out that though people could choose many different plans, all of those different plans would not succeed. Even should they take those plans and follow them without vacillation. In other words, without any going back and forth on it. All of them would not succeed. Joshua's point is, you must follow the right plan. There is a right plan. If the air traffic controller doesn't have a plan in mind, lives are in jeopardy. And the same is true if the controller has a plan in mind and instructs the pilots to follow the plan while it conflicts with other flight plans. There, too, lives are in danger. Now, we have reached Joshua in this address to the Israelites at a time when he is aware that his leadership will no longer be sufficient for the Israelites because he is not going to be with them much longer. So he uses this opportunity to impress upon them the need for personal decision. Now he gives two sets of instructions. I don't mean two instructions, but two sets of instructions. The first is in chapter 23, and it is the instructions to the leaders. He has taken the leaders aside and given them the bulk of 23 as instructions. Now in chapter 24 are his words to all of the people 
as individuals, including the leaders. And this is the chapter from which we have just read. Sometimes it's enough just to have a godly leader in order to lead a life that is right. We know that having a leader such as Joshua brings great benefit to people who are his followers. And we know from the account of Joshua's life, as well as from the accounts of many other godly leaders in Scripture, that those who were godly, those who were close to God, brought great advantage and help to the lives of their people, the people who followed them. But Joshua's godly leadership was about to end. And he didn't know what kind of leadership was going to follow him. Though the people had followed him well during his time as their leader, he didn't know what would come of their lives in the future. And therefore, he spoke to them, telling them what they needed to do. Now, if you think about it, if godly leadership is all that is necessary in order to have a flock of godly people, then the only ones that Joshua really needed to speak to were the ones he spoke to in chapter 23. If all he needed to do was to talk to the leaders, and if they had led faithfully, and if they had lived godly lives, then the people would have followed in godly ways, then we don't need 24. <clears throat> but though leadership may be godly, and the people obey godly leadership very nicely, the end result may be that the people are merely towing the line because of the leadership. That people have not made any further or any more important decision than that first basic elementary decision that they would play the game of follow the leader. And that decision, though it's a great decision, is insufficient for the lives of followers. They may be following the leader, and by following the leader they may be good little people. But if that is the only decision that we as people make to follow a leader who is godly, then we will never ourselves be godly people. There's a short and to the point illustration of this principle shown by one of the kings of Judah in the Old Testament, Joash. <clears throat> we read in 2 Chronicles 24, 1 and 2, these cryptic words which describe his kingdom. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years of Jehoiada the priest. What is made clear by that short description of Joash's reign is that while he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, while Jehoiada was the priest, while Jehoiada the priest was alive, when the priest died, Joash went way, way, way off the mark. Later in the chapter, in verses 17 through 19, we read how far exactly he went from God. We read this, After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, Joash. And he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came upon Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. The crowning act of this King's life, who had been such a great follower of the godly priest Jehoiada, was that after Jehoiada died, when the Holy Spirit spoke through Jehoiada's son Zechariah to speak out against the evil of Joash the king's reign, Joash said, 
to his people. Take that man out and kill him. A far piece from being a godly follower because he was following a godly, godly leader to being a man who made his own choice when the leader was gone. There is the example of warning and there too is the principle that Joshua was, was acting upon. Godly leadership will never do. It will never have any long-lasting impact on the lives of followers until the followers make spiritual decisions and decide to follow God's course for themselves. Until that happens in the lives of followers, they are caged lions kept within the bounds by their leaders, but sure to go astray, sure to run amok as soon as the godly leadership has disappeared. Now Joshua's crossroads of decision for the Israelites were as much for us as they are for them. First came the history from the Lord. Words which we see beginning in verse 2 were spoken by God to Joshua for him to relate to the people of Israel, of Judah. And this is what we read. Joshua, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. Now as we look at the words which Joshua spoke to the Israelites, we see that this is how he begins. And following these words which, jo which God has given Joshua to speak to the Israelites, Joshua puts in his own counsel. There is a feature of the event here described that we could easily miss because it is not an integral part of what Joshua is saying. But nevertheless, it is a fundamental underlying girder which holds up this whole thing that Joshua is doing. Because we see first, Joshua began. He began by speaking the words of the Lord to the people. In other words, God had said to Joshua, tell the people this, and Joshua did it. And Joshua followed and finished by speaking his own words. There should never be any question about what comes first. Even as Joshua demonstrated the truth of the matter, in these his last words, what God says is always first and foremost. The absolute truth and the absolute authority. That must always be true, a principle of our lives as God's people. Now, it's amazing the number of people who will seek guidance from a Christian friend, and yet they'll come into the conversation very upfront with the fact that they haven't, and they don't intend to follow what God says about the matter in question. Yet they feel, nonetheless, that it is wise to consult a Christian about what they should do. Many people who are Christians feel the same way and often do the same thing. They look for human advice and counsel when they won't follow God's counsel. And the foolishness is, of it is that they'll even come up with reasons why they can't do, why they can't listen, why what God says, what the words of, why what the words of the Lord says are wrong for them or in this particular situation. While such a way of rationalizing, dodging the truth, is dangerous in the worst way. 
for me as a pastor as well as for all believers, our attitude must be this. When God speaks, he is to be obeyed. When God gives instructions for any situation, whether it is at the point of a leader's demise, death, Joshua was about to die, or any other point in life, his instruction is the only right way. It is the only path that is guaranteed not to lead to terrible and dangerous peril. So that when, for instance, we are speaking to someone with a certain problem, someone in a certain situation which God addresses, it is foolishness. It's even worse than that. It is terrible evil for us to tell them otherwise or to even let on that there is another answer than the answer that God gives. And if a person won't listen to God's words, why come to me? Why go to you? If a person won't listen to God's words, I can't help. Well, then, what is God's counsel? If it is what we are to follow and what we are to present to other people, nothing more, nothing less than what we find here in this book of God's word. Earlier, I pointed out that Joshua first told the people what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. And then he followed it by what he said. Now as we look back and we read in God's book what Joshua said to the people, we understand that not just what the Lord said came from the Lord, because Joshua's words were inspired as well. And how do we know that? We know that because we find them here. Okay? So in other words, the whole thing now becomes for us the words of the Lord because it is in God's word and it is right instruction. <clears throat> but there are people who believe that today, as in Joshua's day, as in the time of the New Testament, God speaks his word in the same way through people as he did through the people whose words are recorded in Scripture, such as Joshua. Now, it's true that God's wisdom and the filling of the Holy Spirit is as real and as dynamic today as it was at any time in history. But the whole message set out in the end of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The whole message here is this. Scripture is closed. This book is unique. It alone, which we find in the Old and New Testaments, is accepted and set forth by the early church. It alone is God's word, true and faithful. Anything or anyone that claims that words that they are speaking, if they are not speaking words from Scripture, anything, anyone who claims words they are speaking today come direct from the Lord. What? If we read this from Revelation and believe it, then we understand that God is saying anyone who claims the Lord said this and then speaks will receive the curses which are indicated in God's word. It is terribly important to understand that distinction as we look for guidance and direction, not only for ourselves, but also for others. 
There is danger in both directions. There are many people and many times ourselves as well who would want to deny parts of Scripture. And there are as well times when people want to add to Scripture to say that there is more that God has spoken than what we read in His Word. And here it is. Now when I get up here to preach on Sunday, I have asked for and I believe that the Holy Spirit has guided my preparation and directs my words. Nonetheless, my words do not stand alone. Separate and distinct as though they are words direct from the Holy Spirit. Because they are not. The Holy Spirit may use what I, may use what anyone else says or writes to speak to the hearts of those who hear and read. But the only true standard by which what I say, by which what anyone says or writes, the only true standard by which everything must be judged is this right here and this alone, separate and complete. We have to understand that at all times. Now, all of this may seem a terrible digression from the text, but it isn't, and here's why. Because Joshua is seeking to cause the people of Judah to rely upon him no longer. They never should have relied upon him, except for in certain things, which they had done a good job of relying upon him for, such as him as the general. But he is seeking to cause them to make a decision. Some of them have made the decision, some of them haven't. He wants them to turn their eyes upon the Lord. He wants them to worship the Lord alone. He wants them to put their trust in the Lord's words alone. And they, he wants them to have their faith in God alone. Not in Joshua's leader. He wants to be let out of the loop completely. He wants to make sure they know he's out of the loop. And by that I mean that their communication network up to this point has been somewhat like this. They look to Joshua, and he worries about communicating to God. When Joshua hears from God, then they hear from Joshua. And the only person they have to worry about listening to or obeying, as far as they consider it, is Joshua. And it's easy to believe in Joshua, because Joshua is standing right before them, and they can poke him. They can see him, and they can touch him. But that wasn't the way it was. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be. That is the way. That that isn't the way it ever will be. God had set Joshua up over them, but they personally, each and every individual, had to look to the Lord, Him and herself, to listen to Him, to decide where they stood with regard to God Himself. And it's the same way today. It doesn't matter what any man says or does. Another person does not determine where you stand spiritually. You decide about God for yourself. You cannot hang on the coattails of someone else when it comes to faith. You must do and decide for yourself. Now, how did God prepare them for this time of decision? As we look through what he said through Joshua, we find that he did it by reminding them of the past of his work in history, which was their very own history, by coming up through time so that he touched their lives directly and said, you live in houses, eat the fruit of vineyards, 
that you never built and never planted. And so he starts way back at the time of Abraham and he comes up and says, here's what I've done for you today. Remember that house that you came from this morning? Remember that vineyard whose wine you've been drinking? Me. I'm the one who did that for you. And so that's how he did it. If I were to speak in the same way to us today, in other words, if God's words were to come to us and they were to be relayed to us about what he has done for us in history, he would doubtless come up to the present even as he did with the people of Judah, speaking to us of all the blessings that we ourselves have experienced, the safety of our homes, the plenty of our cupboards, jobs, possessions, friends, a place and freedom to worship, peace, at least for the present, and of course the greatest of all, the blessing of Jesus Christ who died and was raised again to take our sins and to remove them from us if we would repent. But then as the past was brought before our eyes and we heard as clearly as the people of Israel did that the blessings we have known come from God, the future would also be put into our hands for us to do with as we wished. For even though God is a God of blessing and he blesses us and others abundantly, he never forces gratitude. He never forces allegiance upon anyone. We see as the Israelites did, these are the facts. And as God said to them, I'm paraphrasing greatly, of course, I am the one behind all your blessings, the one who brought every blessing upon your ancestors, the one who chose your father Abraham. But now the future is yours. Joshua spoke to the Israelites and said, here is the only right path as you look at the future. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. <clears throat> and we have it right there. There is only one path that is right, and that is the path that will lead to righteousness and further blessing. And the decision that must be made is perfectly clear. There is even no arm twisting about it. Because as, as, as Joshua presented the one option, you think about that air traffic controller again. He sees that this plane's coming this way and this one's going that way. He's, he can do many things. And John was telling us some of the crazy things they have to do. If, for instance, an air traffic controller uh, who's at O'Hare Airport sees their region and they're just too busy, they're socked in, they'll tell the Aurora Air Traffic Control Center can't bring anybody into this sector. And so when the planes get to here, what do they do? Well, they've got to turn them all around again. And the longer O'Hare socked in, the more people they've got to turn around and mix up and match. Well, the point is, Joshua says, here is the right way. Serve the Lord with faithfulness and throw out all the other gods. But he says, okay, you don't have to do it that way. Here's what he says. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. Now, if we look at those two things, the gods your forefathers served beyond the river and the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living, you understand that the scale was pretty well weighted. Because what about 
the gods their forefathers served beyond the river. Well, Abraham was the one that was blessed. Not any of the rest of those guys. Not any of the rest of his relatives who had stayed beyond the river and continued to worship other gods. It was Abraham. What about the Amorites? Would you choose to worship the Amorites? The gods of the Amorites? (laughs) Well, I'm living in one of the Amorites' houses. And I guess it means that their gods weren't very successful. That's the message. And so we enter into the year 1991, and the message here is so very important. The past is behind you. Here, says the Lord, is what I have done for you. If you will see it. The future is before you for you to see. And that future is decided, will be decided, must be decided, but by what you do in the present right now. For as the choices are before you, so you must choose today whom you will serve. Look at the past. Consider the future. But today is the day for decision. Will you fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, throwing away all other gods? Or will you take the other course and serve other gods? We must each understand as we enter this new year, there is no immunity There is absolutely no grace period which protects us personally from having to make this decision. Particularly since, as we have read these words from the Lord, the the gauntlet has been thrown down. The decision has been set before us. What gods other than the Lord might we choose? For certainly we are free to choose any gods other than the Lord ourselves. We may choose humanism which says that man is the supreme being within the universe. And the man is capable of doing anything himself. We may choose utilitarianism, which decides everything, every decision I make based on what is going to bring the best to me. We may worship cars or money, jobs, education. We may worship the environment, our families, our freedom. We may worship mystical experience, Follow the horoscopes and astrology as the guiding light of our lives. Joshua made it clear. You can choose. You have to choose. You will choose. Even if you don't choose, you've chosen. But understand what the Lord has done for you before you make your choice. And with the choice laid before the people, Joshua used his own influence one last time. But... As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He didn't care whether he was in the majority. He didn't care whether he and his household were a minority of one. The decision was made for him, and all who dwelt in his household, they would serve the Lord. Then he waited to hear the voice of the people. And this is what the people said. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. The lessons of history were not lost on these people. They knew. They could recount and they did recount, as we read in this passage, just what God had done for them in the past. They knew too that their link to the future lay in following their God. The God who had chosen them, they were going to in turn choose without breaking the cord that tied them to him. Today is the link that ties the past with the future.
And for each of us, the decision must be made. What do I choose? Where do I stand? Where do I wish to go? Whom will I follow? And that last question of all is the only question of all questions that counts. The only question which, if answered correctly in your heart and mind, will lead us in the right direction. Can we say right now, but more importantly, will you and I say right now, along with Joshua, as for me and for my household, we will serve the Lord.